0: By the Crow. Poem, Letter, Music. Here are some things for you, continuing themes from the last few weeks in one of my semi regular breaks from essaying. First, a poem and some avian drawings. Then, a letter to a friend from a very strange week spent dog and cat sitting for rich Londoners whilst trying to make ends meet, both from 2018. Lastly, I press a mixtape into your sweaty palm whilst mumbling something about Brian Eno's amazing harmony vocals on this one. By the Crow This year in a day is the non-doing of desire, stopping no flows, yet not overflowing, a good hard koan for her. Today is a long strange verse, not fully translated from the original, the language of blood, pheromones, thirst. Threatened correspondence of the crow, eyeing her from atop the cockpit opposite. When she opens the galley door first thing, a massive surging in her, like horses bolting on soft sand for the hell of it, makes the loud boatyard cat rub and stretch, angling for a belly stroke. The crow calls six cores one minute after the palace clock chimes six. She goes by the crow, not the tower. What does it want? Unnaturalness From a letter, 2018 It has taken three days to realise what makes me so uncomfortable here in this expensive flat, in this sought-after area, with its great transport links and well-stocked independent shops aside from the unnaturalness of two healthy cats being kept indoors, a dog that has deliberately not been toilet trained and is treated openly as a human baby, and the lack of a single piece of art of any kind, with a garden that has no plants, just grass and wood and slatted fences. It's that there's only one handmade thing in this entire dwelling, if you do not count the linen basket made inverted commas, by hand, on a production line in a factory condition in Southeast Asia. There is one small wooden ladle in a lovely pale maple or sycamore by the looks of it, charred from sitting in a pot that burnt dry perhaps. It's badly made, ungainly, too thick in the bowl and too small to be useful, too curved to stir well, with the bowl sitting at an angle where it cannot be of any use and indeed does not even sit upright on a flat surface. The transitions between bowl and handle stem are severe and unsmoothed, with tiny jags of grain protruding, so it's hard to get clean. The handle tapers off slightly, strangely, too soon. It's like a Lilliputian wooden pastiche of a certain kind of imported soup ladle that would normally be made of bamboo and coconut shell. But still, it's the only thing I can find to stir my morning porridge, my lunchtime soup, or my evening pasta. It is surely a first attempt at carving from an expensive and trendy spoon-making day in Dalston. Don't get me wrong, I love making spoons, ladles, butter knives, and I use what I've made. But this is a totem of cack-handed realness here in the flat of the machine, and so I'm increasingly fond of it. I have 26 hours more to stay here, and I will never again look after creatures in this way for wealthy people who do not allow animals their natural behaviours. Shortly, I will take the dog for a walk and let him sniff and pee, which is the dog grapevine, newspaper and health gossip all in one. In my boat, I could not begin to count the number of things made by hand. I wouldn't know where to start, even with the things I had made myself. I would estimate that there are several hundred handmade items in the 40-foot boat alone. Ah, perhaps all the fitted wardrobes in this apartment with their handleless surfaces conceal scores of couture dresses, bespoke shirts and suits, handcrafted shoes. I doubt it. But I'm also not interested or invasive enough to go and look. I think I would get even more disheartened. It's not just class or wealth or age that divides the homeowners and me here. It's the realisation that what you look at all day if you have a say in it, does reflect what fills your mind. When one shares a space or is travelling, when poor and desperate, homeless, squatting in insecure places, all of which I've experienced at some point, then the decor is secondary to all other considerations. But when you can afford a television too big to watch comfortably from your sofa, and there is ample wall space, no minimalist aesthetic, Would you not choose something you like to rest your eyes upon, beside pale grey emulsion paint? I out myself as a William Morrisian here. Maybe that's now perversely seen as elitist, but I do not care. In this home, where only two pots work on the induction hob, there is no bread knife, no chopping board, no wooden spoon, no dustbin. There are 300 DVDs, including all of Disney's children's films, yet there are no children here. There are 1.2 metres of unread, mainly clean-eating cookbooks, no one actually seems to cook anything in them, and cupboards full of expensive party games, still plastic-wrapped. I see adult children, well-meaning, adrift, lacking any practical skills, infantilized and infantilizing, consuming, wasteful, cut-off from nature. And apparently, this is all entirely normal, and I'm the freak, with my plants, veggie beds and homemade furnishings. I grew up with very little money, no holidays, no art, except for mum's beautiful embroideries and some great local watercolours. No books either, unless from the library. I am no middle-class snob, and art college did not much mould my character, little that I had to mould. And so, I will allow myself to say this, I hate it here and cannot wait to leave. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top. When I first started this substack, I wanted to share more music, but each week so many other good things have stolen the spot at the foot of my weekly posts. So, I have begun to compile a first playlist for readers of and listeners to Uncivil Savant. You should be able to use the link in the essay to listen on Spotify if that appeals to you. This first playlist is still under construction, and I will add to it all through Lent, as I have given up scrolling through other people's crafts and art on Instagram. Wish me luck! All the music on this list makes me feel strangely uplifted, yet also slightly yearning, usually resulting in me dancing around my bedroom or harmonising along, exactly as you would expect from someone who went to art college in the clifftop mansion that once housed Mary Shelley. I was about to write, Don't judge me, but that is not possible, and the mixtapes we gave each other in the 1980s were exactly how you judged where your friends were at. So, judge away. In the 1990s, for three years, I worked in the legendary, now defunct, Helter Skelter Music bookstore in Denmark Street, London, also known as Tin Pan Alley, home to many musical instrument shops. Our diverse customers included Johnny Greenwood, Bernard Sumner, Berry Gordy and Lowell Coxhill. Staff mixtapes were a source of pride, rivalry and discovery. Einstein Neubarten and Nick Cave were on heavy rotation when manager Michael was at the desk. REM and American Music Club were on owner and writer Sean Bodie's regular tapes. I played lots of Dead Can Dance, King Crimson, and even my own band's mixes to hear them on a different hi-fi setup. This was all much to the annoyance of the Dylanologists who congregated each Saturday and who only wanted to hear classic rock. The shop was full of great writers and musicians most weekends. Paolo Hewitt, ex-record collector editor Peter Doggett, Renaissance man Julian Cope and a very dour John Cale all came in and signed piles of books for us in our haven full of new and vintage volumes on music. Karen O'Brien was the only female music writer I met whilst working there. I just looked up her books about women in rock, Joni Mitchell and Kirsty McColl online, and found an article she wrote about music fandom in The Independent. It surprised me by featuring an opinionated young musician, Caroline Nevy Ross. Never heard of her. Two of the proudest musical moments of my life were when, in one month, both Johnny Marr and Elvis Costello walked out of the store with my demo tapes in their hands after stopping and asking me, This is great! What are you playing? Imagine high fidelity, but in a bookshop. That was us. It was inevitably bloke-heavy, customer-wise, but with two women and two men as the complete staff, there was balance and harmony behind the scenes and on the tape machine. It remains the only proper job I ever had, regularly working for a company. Sean was the greatest boss, and is much missed. Enjoy the uncivil savant mix, it's growing. See you next week.